Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week as I am most weeks by Jeremy Goldcorn, who is joining us via Skype from Oahu, where it's nigh impossible to curl one's lip into a sneer and where surely the sea, the surf, the sand, the spirit of Aloha have taken the edge off the ordinarily superhuman cynicism of the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? What are you talking about? Kaiser, even more cynical than uh, than usual uh, in Hawaii. Well, you are in Waikiki, so I guess that that's the one place in Hawaii where one could kind of summon up cynicism, right? Well, I'm in better shape than I usually am. I have a bit of sun. Uh, you know, I've been surfing, but uh, it doesn't change my uh, outlook on the world. Nor does an image of surfing Jeremy Goldcorn really change my image of Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> Well, that man just jumped in uh, before the proper introduction, but we will um, well, quickly. David Moser can't be with us today, alas, but it is a sad, sad day because we are going to bid farewell to one of the best-loved journalists in town whose voice you just heard. Once a frequent guest on Seneca, but alas, who got too damn busy. I guess his prodigious output is part of the reason why he's so well-loved here. But we're talking, of course, about Mr. Gotti Epstein, correspondent for The Economist, who is going to be leaving Beijing in mere days for some American city. Was it New 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 York? New it's a, York. It's a city in America. Yeah, it's a second-tier city. Uh, right, right. Only 8 million people. Uh, right. um, Gotti, well, welcome back. And though it saddens me, I suppose I'm obliged to congratulate you on this, this new appointment. You are obliged. Okay. Um, thank you. All right. Well, I haven't actually done it yet, but congratulations. <laughs> now. Uh, what, what can you tell us about this new position? Do you have a beat actually assigned yet? Uh, yeah, it's called it's called media editor. It's a it's a beat uh, where you report on the media industry broadly defined. Oh, okay. uh, so that includes uh, publishing, film, television, um, internet podcasting, co- internet <laughs> podcasting. Absolutely, uh, podcasting will be my first successful China podcast. Will be my first story. So I'll ask you guys if you know of any. Right. Um, I've, I've heard and, one. We want uh, the cover, Gotti. We want the cover. Well, I mean, I'm actually just going to you to if I just I haven't heard of a successful one yet, but uh, I'd love to hear of any <laughs> candidates you have. Uh, and uh, it's also I can go around the world for it, so it's it's meant to be reported. Oh, um, nice. Uh, globally, so. Oh, good, uh, good. That'll good. be that'll be fun, and I'm I'm sure I'll come back here. So it won't just be Gawker and Upworthy and, and Buzzfeed. Indeed, I'll just yeah. I'll start there and then go. Yeah. And, uh, wider concentric circles. I'm yeah. looking for, forward to the the cover story about the onion. I'll read it. I'd love to do that. Yeah, you should. You really should. Um, so, I mean, our, our listeners probably kind of knew you from the time that you were still a Forbes reporter here, and then you joined the Economist sort of midway through. Uh, uh, I think give, give give us just a quick timeline of your whole storied career here. Well, I started here um, uh, in June uh, 2002 um, uh, oh, under with the, with the Baltimore Sun. Uh, Baltimore it, is also a city in America, right? It, Baltimore is also a city in America, known mostly from The Wire. Right. Um, the, in uh, which you had a cameo. I have to put that in there. Indeed. <laughs> Two brilliant, glorious seconds that are the highlight of my career. <laughs> um, you know what season and episode, right? You, this I would season. not possibly remember. I think season five, episode nine, about 20, 21 minutes. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so I arrived in 2002. Uh, uh, I was here for the 16th Party Congress, saw, uh, saw the handover from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, um, or the very slow two-year Right, the, the <laughs> slow crawling transition. Uh, which some people say has still not ended. Uh, Jiang Zemin, 89 years old, uh, uh, still making himself heard in Shanghai. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and I, I would say that I, um, I knew I was not a sinologist. I came here, you know, essentially fresh off the plane. Um, and my first introduction to China was, was essentially the Air China flight that took me over. Uh, other than, you know, I read a few books, uh, before I, 
before I got here. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, I can, I'm imagining, you know, the, this young pink lunged and idealistic Gotti Epstein stepping off an air China flight. If, you know, the old seasoned veteran Gotti Epstein now with a little gray in your beard, a little less hair on top of your head, what would you, uh, would you say to the former you now if you had to sort of dispense some, some, some advice, um, on, you know, on getting China reporting right? Right. A couple of just a pithy pieces of, of, of wisdom. Yes. Uh, I, I would say um, uh, don't let the fact that no one will talk to you in the government stop you from understanding, trying to understand what the what, <laughs> what, what officials are doing or government is doing. I mean, I think it is pretty easy to go out here and find um, stories of, uh, of injustice, of abuse, uh, official abuse, and, um, uh, and also other uh, kind of very evident problems like pollution, sure. air pollution. Um, and then, uh, so that's great. You should do those stories. Um, and, uh, they're completely valid. Uh, what I think is very hard to figure out uh, everything from the kind of official side of the story, um, much harder than, than it is almost anywhere else. Um, but there are, there's really good research done on that. There's, you know, you mm-hmm. just, you know, read widely, um, Almost on almost every topic, there's great academic literature um, with people really working hard to understand this stuff. And some uh, some academics, both Chinese and foreign, have access to information that that we can't get. Um, but then you can sort of uh, through them. And so uh, uh, there's there's more out there than you would think. And I think that's something um, that maybe some people wouldn't get when they first. Uh, when they first get here. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Another one? Something uh, else? Um, uh, another one? I mean, uh, I mean uh, at the risk, I think uh, almost anything else I can think of off the top of my head would sound, uh, you know, patronizing, but you have to um, um, obviously get out to the, you know, get out to as many provinces as you can as early as you can, like see different parts of China. Uh, I think that's what a young journalist would want to do anyways, though. Right, I mean, uh, right. But, uh, you know, there is... Obviously, the people who come in here, like a who write a column for a major American newspaper uh, after a flight here and then a cab ride, um, they see. Are you are you thinking of somebody in? Not at all. I can't imagine that you would be thinking of. This is a complete hypothetical. Person. No one would be like that. Uh, no one would do that. No, no, um, no one would be like that. Uh, no, I mean, uh, those, are the, those are some of the most embarrassing pieces of of, of writing right. I've ever encountered. Um, I would also look at. Uh, I think you know. I would look at stories that are the received wisdom uh, uh, that have been done in the last five, ten years, and and see what how those situations have changed. Because I think um, one thing that is a constant about China, of course, is that it is changing constantly. And uh, in some ways, that's those there are improvements, and and uh, those are things actually that have led to a couple of the stories in the last few years I've done that it, uh, kind of opened my eyes a bit. Um, not necessarily to say that all of a sudden the Chinese system is is a wise and all knowing, um, but that they are trying to, to do things. And, and for instance, a story I did a couple of years ago about the massive decline in executions in China, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, you know, there were, uh, probably as many as 12,000 executions a year in 2002. Uh, and now we're down to maybe 2,500. Um, and that's, there's, I mean, of course it's still 90% of the world's executions. Uh, but, uh, it, it, there's a big story behind that decline about uh, how that happened, and it's interesting. Um, and it was not, you know, by accident. Right. Uh, and so that's that's an interesting insight into the system, and um, those are the kind of stories I do much more of now than when I first got here. Um, more capable of doing them. 
Um, but I find them. Were, were, you on the show? were you on the show when we had Joshua Rosenzweig from Duihua? Yeah, we were yeah, on the we show. Were on the show together. Maybe, right, right. Uh, I don't know if my my story must have come out at that point. Or maybe, right, right. Maybe that's, I think that's I the reason that we had you on. Okay. Uh, yeah. on right. So absolutely, that's a perfect example. of. of, of. You actually talked about a, a number of things just in answering that question that, that um, touch on topics I want to talk to you about, about the kind of disparity and, you know, the transparency of the Chinese system or the opacity versus, right. um, and also about, you know, reading. You said read widely. And so maybe we'll start there. Uh, you said read widely. Uh, give us a couple of books that you think that you would, you know, hand to. You only need one book: <laughs> The Coming Collapse of China by Gordon Chang. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, a classic. <laughs> uh, uh, I did actually read that book. Uh, that just shows you how uh, what I what kind of uh, situation I was in in 2001, two, one yeah, or two, two yeah, before yeah. I got here. Uh, I probably read it in 2001, um, and. Uh, but I, I also read at that time Rivertown, which of course is still worth reading. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. As is, I think, Peter Hessler's last book, um, Driving in Country Driving. Country right. Driving. I always call it Driving in China, but Country Driving, um, which has within it some really great, um, kind of, uh, set pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and I think you said we can't mention Evan Osmond's Age of Ambition, um, uh, this, the pursuit of uh, fortune, truth, and faith uh, in modern China. So box. I won't mention that. Uh. Um, uh, Wealth and Power uh, by uh, <laughs> my friend John Delury and Orville Schell. Uh, those are good recent books. I mean, I'm really the wealth of literature that's come out since I got to China uh, that's done popular literature. I mean, it's, it's much more than was available when I got here. Isn't uh, there some... It's much better informed. I mean, you had over, over recent years, I mean, even going back almost a decade, you had uh, James King's um, right. China Wakes Up and Shakes the World, China Shakes, China the, shakes world. the World, uh, Phil Pan's um, Out of uh, Mouth Shadow. Out of Shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to miss a few books here that are great. Pomfret's Chinese Lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's uh, you know there's a lot of uh, good stuff to choose from. Absolutely. That wasn't and so where's really yours? Where, I, I mean, isn't there some unwritten rule that as you leave China, you're supposed to have gotten a book contract already? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a, a book contract would be not uh, would probably not be a, a problem. Uh, I can. You know, I could easily get a one thousand dollar or two thousand dollar contract. Um, Wiley, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I haven't decided whether I'd ever pursue a China book or not. Uh, I still, I'm keeping that option open. Okay. Um, but, well, I mean, I hope that we have you on, to, you know, on your grand world p- book tour. But, tour. Me, but <laughs> coming collapse of China, Gordon Chang. I, I, I've always said <laughs> he's going to be seen as a prophet in the year twenty two hundred. Right. The broken clock um, theory. <laughs> exactly. 2200. Right, exactly. Because, you know, it will have collapsed in, in 2199. There'll be whole religions around him at that time. <laughs> the Church of Gordon Chang. <laughs> I think there already is kind of, I mean, although it's kind of an, more of an evil cult than the, the church right now. Um, yeah, so, uh, like I said, you touched on a number of things that, that, uh, that, that I thought, um, one of them was, uh, you know, you talked about the opacity of China and then, you know, how we shouldn't be discouraged by it. But, you know, I, I was having a conversation with John Holden. You guys all know who he is. Um, John used to be the, the head of the, the, uh, National Committee on, you know, the, on U.S.-China relations. Uh, very old, uh, seasoned, not only old, but, but very <laughs> he's, he's seasoned. He's China extremely one. ancient. <laughs> China hand. No, no, man. No, he's not. He's a, uh, he's a vigorous, uh, absolutely. China hand. No, he's great. And, and he's also, um, you know, very, very wise on this stuff. One of the things he yeah. said was that, um, mutual understanding between the United States and China will never be, and for, for one, it, I thought it was a, kind of a brilliant insight. He said that the U.S. won't understand China because, simply because it is so opaque, because it's, 
it, it's uh, so closed and uh, it insists on presenting this facade of unanimity to the world. I mean, you, you can never sort of pick apart the different threads going on. It's not easy to. You can only speculate. Whereas China will never understand the U.S. for exactly the opposite reason, because it's just there's just such a plurality of voices, because it's just su- such you know a, a heterogeneous society. Because you know they don't know whether they should be listening to Congress or the Senate, or should they be listening to the State Department or the White House or or, or Department of the Treasury, or you know what is the voice coming out of America on a given topic. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I saw a lot of truth in that. What, what, what do you think? And, and how is this going to affect your reporting as you go to the United States and to this city called what is it, New, New York? New York. Right. Yeah. Um, well, fortunately for that. me, uh, I'll be um, I'll be looking at it from a you know kind of looking at it that whole relationship from kind of a side angle because I'll be doing a completely unpolitical right. uh, beat, at least in name. I'm sure it'll be. I'm interested in doing political stories from the media beat, but it's a, it is a. Not primarily that. Because there's um, no politics within media organizations. There, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, that's, you could, you could say that and you could also say, uh, that actually they do sort of understand each other. They just never, never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think, uh, from the Chinese, uh, political perspective, it's, um, they, they map onto, um, the U.S. sort of their view of how governance is done by them. So right. they, so it's easy. You'll hear uh, that the U.S. has an agenda to uh, regime change, and that everything is geared towards that. It's all organized. You know, it's all organized, and in, in, and uh, there's a there's a there's an agenda uh, behind everything that is done by any uh, organization, including independent organizations, NGOs. But you think uh, they know better? Google in, in their, and Google. Well, I think <laughs> we should. And the New York that. Times. So some some know better, and some don't. I think there's actually some. The thing is that that language filters uh, down uh, from from on high, uh, and I think some people absorb it uh, unironically. Um, mm-hmm. Plenty of people actually, uh, and uh, but I, I'm sure that there's a pretty sophisticated understanding of it um, um, at at senior levels. Uh, now, maybe there are some things that there is not a sophisticated understanding, or what we would we would consider from the U.S. perspective to be an appropriate understanding. Uh, but we also, like you said, that part of it is opaque. You know that we we can't really see what's what's going on in the leadership's minds because they never open that up to mm-hmm. uh, for public. Um, but I think it's it's tremendously so we useful don't know. that you say. I mean that yeah, you do go to the academic literature. You do go to these people who are are quite well connected and, and can you know are, are practiced at reading the tea leaves. Right. So in that sense, I think I would I would uh, push back a little bit against the opacity because. There is a lot that is actually put out there um, in writing, in the structure of governance, of mm-hmm, Chinese governance, mm-hmm. that uh, we can get access to. And so and if you just say that they mean what they say, um, then you can, get, you can understand a lot about what's going on in China. And, that, and for instance, just take the national security law that um, um, was just, uh, just passed. passed right? um, the language in there is quite revealing about what the, what the party's uh, insecurities are and priorities are. And I think that's, that's something that helps us understand. Uh, what the leadership is thinking. You just have to do it sort of reflected mm-hmm. through that. Another thing that you touched on in uh, dispensing advice is, you know, going back and looking at the conventional wisdom and maybe reassessing it. Um, we're probably all, I mean, I think n- nobody would deny that there are certain sort of structural biases that are kind of maybe even ineradicable, but 
there were probably others that you know where where you kind of can identify the privileges and the prejudices and the preconceptions of of a journalist coming in. I think that one of the reasons, well, that I like you is that you're pretty good at avoiding those pitfalls. I mean, you're you're you're, you you don't bring a strong ideological agenda that's that's to me at least easily identified, and you are pretty you know faithful about getting the other voices in, even if they're they're hard to 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 include sometimes. I think most people who read you would probably agree. What advice would you dispense about avoiding the pitfalls of 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 of, of bias that you know that I, I think are kind of self defeating sometimes because they they arm a lot of angry people with ammunition su- that suggests that there is that kind of you know a, an agenda. Right. I would. Uh, well, I want to take on the premise of this question a little bit. Okay. Um, well, I do think, of course, there's a very wide spectrum of uh, reporting on China. On the whole, it's vastly improved over the time I've been here. Mm-hmm. Um, I include myself in that. I think I've, I've hopefully gotten better over time. Um, and uh, But I think uh, the whole press corps has, and it's gotten deeper. Um, there's much larger staffs. And this gets to part of the issue. It's like when you're only one reporter uh, for an organization, you're going to end up picking off only the dramatic stories, the, that's head- right. the headline stories. And that's a structural issue in journalism. It's not about China or not China. It's, this, is, uh, this is what I'm talking about, uh, right. So that, that means that, uh, and, and I actually, this, this actually re- brings up another point uh, where uh, now I'm going to begin the exit interview of Kaiser Guo. Uh, you constantly refer to the Anglophone media mm-hmm. um, when you talk about these kinds of issues. It's the only one I'm familiar with. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Uh, but... Uh, Actually, I think the Anglophone media um, is, on the whole, more diverse, more deep in its coverage um, than some of the uh, other European uh, national media. Oh, Gaddy, uh, not some. I mean, the Anglophone media is better than all the other media. Right. Well, I was being a little bit diplomatic. No question. But, uh, this but is I mean, not that a... is partly just because there's so much of it. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. And what I mean is that when, you when have I do make reference to that, I, I, it's because I am. I don't. Yeah, read but French, I think I some of your criticisms don't really apply to the Anglophone media. They apply to maybe Western media as a construct to some degree, but actually more to some of these countries where there's only a couple journalists on the right, ground right. here. Right? I think that there's, there's a... So they only do, and it's not it's not for fault of... They're, they're just as... Uh, uh, they're just as knowledgeable, if not more so, about China. Some of them really know China. From, oh, absolutely, you know, sure. Um, you know, uh, 30, been here many years. and But, but just they, because but there's, there's only, only one, one guy. of them, right, right. Uh, uh, or in, at most two of them in some cases, uh, you're only getting the human rights stories. And That's I right. also feel like that ideological sort of attachment to those stories... Um, is even stronger uh, with some of those uh, in, in some of those countries. Sure. Like in other words, the audience wants them. Perhaps uh, they're delivering them, and so you'll see uh, much more of the coverage tilted towards human rights. Oh, I and, absolutely uh, believe you. Now, I th- I think it's good that they do those stories. And I think those stories should always be done, and I'm glad that there are people within the anglophone media who do a lot of those stories. And I think what's great is that there is this spectrum. So now you ha- you have those you have those stories, like you know I think. Um, I'm sure you have you you probably would uh look at let's say the reportage of of Paul Mooney and think it's a little bit you might think it's a little bit too much focused on on those kinds of issues. I think it's great. You know, and I think Paul does fantastic reporting and deeply understands China. He did and I think he got uh basically punished for it. He didn't get, he doesn't couldn't get a visa um to come here with um uh with Reuters. Um and uh I think but I think his his reporting is fantastic. And I think 
You don't there's think a, that he crosses a, the line into activism? I think ever? there's a place for him. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't deny there's a place for him. Yeah. Get, I think that he gets passionate about these issues. Um, he sees things. You, you say from an ideological perspective. I just think he he has a, he he brings great empathy to the story. Um, now I think there's a place for him, and there's a place for uh, for you know a whole wide range of of journalism. Right. Um, and and that, uh, that's you know, so obviously point. that's not the style that we do at the at the Economist, and I'm glad I'm glad for it because it's not it's not exactly my particular my personal style. Right. Um, but I think that uh, the Anglophone media contains all of these things, and then so so someone who reads widely about China will get exposed to that, but also get exposed to I think um, you know stories which uh, you know cover completely different aspects of the Chinese. I think there's a pretty uh, direct economy. correlation between the, the, the fairness and balanced uh, uh, nature of the coverage and the size of the bureau. Uh, right. and, and I think, you know, you could expand, and this is, this is Beijing's fault. Right. If, I mean, it, it's, it's two things. It's Beijing's fault, but it's also, you know, then you're going to be writing about this, uh, the, the economic realities of media, that it's expensive to keep uh, a Gotti Epstein in the field, right? Um, it's, 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 you know, it's 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 a significant would cost. That it, would, would that would it was that much it more expensive? No, if, if no, <laughs> no, would that it weren't? I mean, if there were if there were a thousand people here, <laughs> he's asking for a raise. Man. Hey, economist people. <laughs> Seriously though, I mean, I, like, I, I, I mentioned on this podcast before you that I, in in a, in a conversation you I had with <laughs> Jim Fallows recently, uh, he was talking about Kaiser's I mean, you know, trying to run a podcast. Here, I am you? right. Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. I'm just trying to get you a raise. <laughs> so no, I mean, if if you had ten thousand journalists here, um, you know, they they wouldn't all be writing about the dissidents about human rights violations. I mean, that as Jim said, you know, there would be an awful lot of people, and any anyone, you know, who who has their eyes open, anyone with, who's who's at all objective about it is going to conclude I think that that's, there's some. I yeah. think that's a pretty. I I actually disagree that that is in the Chinese government's interest. Um, I, don't, I have to disagree with Jim there. Uh, it's one thing to say that there'd be a lot of journalists here, but, uh, you know, th- that misunderstands or, uh, I, don't, I mean, Jim, he, of course, doesn't misunderstand these these points. But uh, I think that doesn't capture uh, the reasoning on the Chinese government side. I mean, New York Times is being used as an example, sure. right? So they did stories about a particular thing, and they want to send a signal. The leadership, you know, the wealth of top leaders as, as Bloomberg right. did, and the you know the connections and all that kind of stuff, um, and uh, and they want to show, they want to demonstrate to everybody that this is not acceptable and that you're going to have trouble getting visas here. It's a weapon, and uh, and I think in that sense, and they, it's very for to them, it's very important. And I think you know we do make the argument when we you know when we opened our China section four years ago. Look, this means we will write more broadly about China. It won't just mean that we do the story of. The story of the week. The whole point is to have a deeper understanding of China. We're happy. To, we, that's what we want to do, um, and I think that probably does appeal to them. Uh, uh, and but at the same time, uh, you know, this uh, this uh, argument that if you just let in ten thousand journalists, uh, everything's going to be fine. I, I actually have to disagree. I think uh, their uh, their fear is that there'll be more um, uh, in depth investigations of, of 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 the of the top leaders and their personal. Finances of personal lives, or you know, what have you, and they want to make sure that there's a, a bright red line. If you let everybody in, then, you, you, then that wouldn't that that wouldn't work. They have to have a, a system of punishments and rewards. <laughs> that's what that's what makes but it work I, for them. I think, um, I, on the other hand, um, if I think of social media and blogs, uh, I mean, the Chinese government has basically made it impossible to run a blog on an easy-to-use platform 
or even a Twitter account. Right. Um, and if I think back to when, you know, maybe 2005, uh, when English language blogging about China was in some ways at its height, uh, and none of the popular free platforms were blocked, um, 90% of the English language blogs about China were about, you know, what it's like to teach English in some shitty little town. And most of them tended to be actually quite positive about China. Um, and those platforms were all destroyed in, in the years since then by blocks. Um, having a lot of people writing about China definitely does increase the amount of empathy for the Chinese situation, I think. I mean, amongst um, the 5,000 readers of each of, of the most read blogs, I mean, I, I think, you know, of individual yeah, blogs. Well, it, it adds up. Journalists it adds read the up. blogs. Uh, read, you know, it does add uh, up. But these, uh, this is different. This is different from, you know, professional journalism. I mean, I, I can see the point that you're trying to make, but I, um, I mean, I'm actually somewhat persuaded by, by Gotti's argument here. Um, I think that they're, you know, I think Jim, Jim was, wasn't, I think he wasn't a, a, a you know, a, a, he, he wasn't making this as a firm, you know, carve this in stone assertion. He was just, it was, it was not flippant exactly either, but I don't think it no, was. No, he's made this point a few times and I, I have read it and just, I respectfully disagree. Okay. I just, I just, I, I just think it's um, no, not taking into account um, fully the Chinese. I mean, the the Chinese logic, the Chinese government governance logic, right. which is pretty consistent across, uh, you know, across the board. You know, it's uh, d- do not allow kind of independent uh, activism outside of what you know, outside of what the system, uh, uh, outside of what the system allows and does, and uh, that in- that applies to. NGOs, it applies to foreign journalists, it applies to activists within China. Uh, they uh, they want their they want to control the message, and uh, and uh, they will use the bludgeons that they have uh, when they feel they need to. One of those tools, of course, is internet censorship. And um, Jeremy was just talking about how you know the, the blogs that flourished in the mid aughts, um, you know, all kind of started to come down one by one by the end of the decade, two thousand eight, and, and afterward. You wrote uh, what I think many people would d- say is the definitive piece um, ab- about uh, the internet in China. Uh, David Moser, who couldn't join us today, wanted to make sure that I got this question. Uh, he says he still teaches this. He still assigns this, your, you know, Gotti's big package, as we called it, um, to his students. The um, big package. Right, yeah. exactly. But that was a preseason ping account. That's true. And, uh, things have changed since. I think they've only gotten more. It's, it's, right. it, what he, it's the leadership of more. <laughs> <laughs> more censorship, more tight controls on the internet. But the logic is exactly is as More money, out. more entertainment, yeah. more Jack Ma, yeah, more I think Robin Lee. I think the logic that is, I think everything in that piece, as far as I, I mean, I haven't gone back to read, uh, to reread it, but, uh, I think it stands up. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've, mm-hmm. I've always felt, which every development that comes out, that this is still this consistent with what consistent you and about. almost preordained, you uh-huh, know, because uh-huh. the internet was never allowed, going to be allowed to become, you know, to burst free. And so, whenever there would be pressures, you know, the big V is getting too too powerful, or or what have you, uh, uh, or activists getting too powerful, being able to take down a, you know, whatever corrupt official they want to. This fits in once again to Xi Jinping's logic. We're going to be the ones to take down corrupt officials. Right. We're going to be the ones to decide what rule of law means and is. It's uh, not going to be citizen activism not, on the internet. Right, it's not going exactly. to be. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of metaphor that was, was going on in that piece, which I, I used many times, was the cage gets bigger, the bars get thicker. Right. The Does the, cage. Is the cage even getting bigger now, though? 
Uh, the giant, yeah, I'm not sure if I said it is getting bigger or described how many square meters it is <laughs> or cubic meters. Um, but, uh, I think the general metaphor just applies. I mean, it's, okay. there is, there's still this giant cage and they want everything inside of it, uh, to appeal, uh, to the, to the Chinese, uh, online audience. That, I, I, I'm sorry. Can you remind me what, what month or week it was in, in 2013 that that came out? So I can just point I, readers to I believe to it was it. April of, early April of 2013. 13, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, let me let this stand as my recommendation for the week. I mean, go back and read that. Uh, it's, Thank you. It's still, it's still, you know, Called a really giant piece cage, of, and it was multiple pieces, uh, you know, there's the... China's internet, a giant cage, right. That's why a, we call it the big package. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to miss you and your big package. Thanks. Um, it's very, very sweet of you, Kaiser. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sweetness that goes on. I mean, one of the things that I think is, um, a, a, look, I mean, in in my in my day job at Baidu, and, and also in this role as um, you know host co-host of Seneca, uh, one of the things that I like best is that I spend a lot of time with journalists. Journalists, of course, are, are people who you know are. are by their very nature, people of uh, ill repute. Exactly, Ill, they have you know good kind of you know, di- they, dissolute habits. The reports you filed of Zhang Nanhai must be very interesting. They're very interesting. Yeah, they're very interesting <laughs> if you could only read them. They were much more interesting than the ones that were that your minders had read. You know about you at your going away party. Yeah, yeah, very interesting cables. Those get those guys to leave the humor to Gotti. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that yeah. Anyway, some of them were brilliant. They just couldn't be. Uh, uh, read publicly. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> anyway, um, like I said, I, I mean, it's one of the things I like most is just that I do get to spend quite a bit of time, you know, in the company of journalists who are, you know, they're, they're curious people by design. Not, you know, they have curiosity, not that they're most curious people. Um, and, uh, I, I actually find them to be kind of surprisingly collegial and, um, you know, generous with one another, very mutually supportive. Is this something that's peculiar to China? Is this because of, you know, kind of the shared experience? Of, uh, is this a war zone kind well, of phenomenon? Or? I feel, I, you know, I can only compare it to what my experience is. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, unusual if you compared it to uh, being in a, in a press corps situation in, in the DC, US. Right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I do think being abroad in general, uh, you know, at expatriate journalists, are a community, um, and uh, certainly when I've gone off to stories in other countries, you have that feeling. The camaraderie is international, mm, so mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, especially amongst the Anglophone media, who can speak each other's language. Um, but uh, no, I think it, it crosses international boundaries, and uh, I think there is something special about Beijing, just because of the time we're in. Like, uh, there's this is a this is seen as a place to be, uh, and I think. Um, a lot of uh, journalists want to come here or, you know, have wanted to come here. I mean, obviously, things like air pollution and quality of life have scared away a couple people over over the last few years. Um, hopefully, that's getting better. Well, today uh, certainly is. It's uh, gorgeous today. But there's this, you know, this excitement here. And so not only in journalism, but in other fields, um, you're seeing a lot of people who uh, want to come here and uh, make their mark. But, Gadi, don't you, don't you think that part of the reason why there's a sort of collegial atmosphere amongst journalists is also that... Uh, you know, Western journalists are, in some ways, the last people living in a completely totalitarian China. You know, people who get fucked with by the government, you know, almost on a daily basis. Uh, uh, and that does breed a certain spirit of, of, of you know, we're in it together. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not so sure. It's not like we get together and and uh, and talk about, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the walls have ears, although we'll make jokes about that. I do think it's much more about 
being uh being abroad in one place that's very that is a compelling story uh i i do think that it's in a that it is a uh unique uh government uh in in modern uh in the modern world that is uniquely important to the rest of the world uh, is very much a part of that you know the the uh, totalitarian uh, aspect of it that you describe i suppose that does kind of uh tinge it with something uh uh some extra bit of uh uh, excitement. Uh, the uh, I don't think that's the primary reason for it, though, uh, for the camaraderie and et cetera. And mm. um, I I just think that it's uh, we're we we feel like we're watching uh, history here uh, together and uh, with a front row seat. Right. But I do think in general the kind of mantra of a foreign correspondent, um, uh, you know, if I may coin one, is uh, just that the competition starts at the keyboard. You know, and we. We don't feel like, uh, I mean, many of us, I mean, there's you know, obviously different personalities amongst different different folks in the press corps, but uh, that's how I approach it, you know. There are going to be so many things that you're going to miss about this, and obviously, you know, the many friends that you've made, that's, that's part of it. Uh, what is it, you, you know, you've, you've talked about this many watching Many enemies as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, other things that you're going to miss, and, and particularly about, you know, uh, about... Chinese people themselves, or the the experience of China. I know that you're you're going to miss the food. You you have quite a, a reputation for being quite you know fond of of the cookery here. Uh, so yeah, I mean riff on that. Just tell me what, what what's gonna what are you going to be aching for three four months from now? Uh, well, I'll certainly uh, yeah of course I'll miss the people here both um, both the expats and the and the, my Chinese friends and um, and the neighborhood that I live in. Uh, I, you know, just yesterday uh, you know I was moving from my courtyard um it was moving day and uh which has got to be heartbreaking because you had the nicest digs right? i had a I, I was really happy there and it was also just a wonderful neighborhood and uh so someone walks in to my door because you know the doors are just open with the with the movers and it's a, a woman who lived there um from the age of one to um uh sometime she was a little bit vague about whether it was six years old or 10 years old you know like basically until early until she was in school uh, mm-hmm. for a while for a few years so probably closer to 10 and uh and it was uh from the era it spanned about 64 to 74 wow. um or 73 until the family that she was living with so she lived between two homes her her her, her own family's home which was in the neighborhood and then they were very tight with this family which had five kids that were living in my uh, where where i was um and uh, so she ended up practically being their sixth kid, um, and so it was just. And she had not walked into that courtyard in forty years. My God! Uh, and uh, so it was quite emotional, and it was nice to, uh, you know, to meet her. And uh, and she still lives in the neighborhood. She just hadn't, uh, you know, worked up um, maybe the courage or the or, or the. The unfriendly scowl that you wear. Well, no, but I mean, uh, there was someone then there. I mean, this is forty years. You know, not. Right. Yeah, you know, I've been only there for six years. Um, but she, she's some, she, she ate nearby actually at, at Susu, my friend Jonathan Hansfield's wonderful courtyard restaurant and, uh, and saw the open doors and decided to go ahead and walk in. And so we just talked about, um, her childhood there and, um, and you know, the, uh, the tenants who got, uh, kicked out, um, uh, around in the, in the, during the cultural revolution, like in 73, 74, uh, they, they had, they, they got kicked out and, uh, the people who live there, um, and, uh, by someone else who lives in the neighborhood. Uh, right. <laughs> so the interesting neighborhood history and that kind of stuff, there's a story behind, as she said, you know, every single, this neighborhood is so interesting. You know, there's a, it's a, you know, it's a very, you know, very old neighborhood in the center of town. 
And, uh, you know, there's a story behind every courtyard home here. Right. Um, so, so for our listeners, is, this is right next to um, just on the east flank of, of the, uh, the, uh, the art, the National, Art, National Museum. Art Museum, right? Yeah. Um, um, on Qian Liang Hutong, the money green Hutong. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it was, uh, uh, it, it's so true. There's a history to every person here. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, you know, sometimes for tragic reasons. Um, but that's so fascinating. I'll miss that. Um, I'll miss that about, about this place. And of course, I'll miss also, um, Sichuan food. So th- those two things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The people and the food. The people and the food. And the stories. I mean, the story is a never-ending story, um, uh, and I, I feel like uh, I leave here with many stories left to do. Um, I mean, let's talk about that. What are some of the big ones that got away that you wish you had done? You know, well, I never, uh, I never fully got the story of the collapse of the Communist Party and the coup uh, <laughs> of Xi Jinping that's already occurred. Um, but you know, I'm still working on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I just think more seriously. Uh, I just think that there's. Um, well, there's some stories. There's actually a couple stories left in my in my notebook. There's a story I just finished that won't run until next week, and I won't get into what those are. Um, and those are ones that I was really hoping to get done uh, uh, before I left. Well, you pulled out um, all nighter the other night just to finish. Yeah, them, to huh? finish one of them. Uh, yeah, there's another kind of bigger piece, uh, think piece um, that I'm writing about, uh, basically the, the, about China, which I won't get into specifics on. Um, probably write it when I get back to the U.S., but I'm not sure exactly when it's going to run. But there's, um, uh, but what actually the point I wanted to make here is that every week um, something's going on here that makes your mind go, you know, and uh, and that makes you wonder, well, what's behind that and what's the history of this? And and there's always something new and interesting to read, uh, new to me, you know, that might have been written in, you know, I read for the story I just did yesterday, I read a great academic paper that was written in 2004 that just sort of laid out the, you know, what the earlier situation was of what I was writing about. And, um, you know, and then there was a, you know, a book that came out in 2011 that was, you know, there, there, there's like so much stuff about China. It's, you know, there's so much that's been produced. And I say a lot of, a lot more of it of higher quality. Um, as we as we keep going as we keep going you know it's a um, certainly than than when I got here in 2002 there's a I think that the field that's that's studying China is much broader and deeper mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and some of them include some of my good friends who are doing great stuff on you know performance you know performance targets for cadres uh, you know legitimate you know how the Communist Party um, attempts to get legitimacy through um, um, uh, through gov- you know through its its form of governance. Um, and, you know, these are things that are now being more, I think, deeply understood and written about by academics, by journalists. Um, so China watching has gotten better, even if it is opaque at the top. And there's still, you know, we still have zero idea. Really, we don't know for sure what happened when Xi Jinping disappeared for 10 days in 2012. Well, I, I do. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, you do, of course, Kaiser, because you're um, you, you have tea with Xi Jinping every day. But uh, you know, there, um, but there are wild theories that are still go on or go around about that. Uh, I mean, I have my own theory as well, but, but the fact that it is opaque at the very top is, keeps it fascinating as well. Uh, so you have a story here that's always, uh, kind of getting your mind going. I'm sure it's too binary of a question, but do you leave uh, China? Gadi, sorry, uh, Kaiser, I mean, sure. I think if, Gadi, if you have a theory about Xi Jinping's disappearance, don't you think this is an appropriate uh, venue <laughs> and time and place to share it? Well, I really didn't want to talk about my alien kidnap theory here. 
Um, oh. uh, but uh, that's not Xi Jinping. <laughs> it's that guy from the, it's those, those aliens from The Simpsons. Right. Um, but what are their names? I can't remember. The multi tentacled guys that drool. Yeah, yeah. I love those guys. Uh, yeah, my, go. I'm going to vote for a third party. Go ahead. Throw your vote away. <laughs> um, uh, in seriousness, I think it was a health. Uh, I I think it was a health issue. Yeah. Um, so, so I was going to say. I mean, it's probably too binary of a question here, but um, do you leave China now more dracophobic or pandophilic, pandaphilic, I suppose, uh, than you were when you arrived? And and you know, has well, Xi Jinping presidency changed that if it has at all? Uh, I don't think I leave either more, uh, of those two things, uh, uh, one of those two things. Uh, and I, yeah, as you said, it would be a binary question. It's actually, it's a different feeling that I have, which is sort of, you know, in 2002, when I arrived, um, the, the question of the day, a very quickly asked question of you landed here was amongst kind of foreigners was, well, how long do you think they have? How long do you think they have to last? Uh, you know, this was 13 years after Tiananmen, mm-hmm. but more importantly, it was the first time they were having a leadership change uh, since uh, since Tiananmen. Right. And uh, SARS was raging. And SARS did start raging a year later, but right. it was actually before that even. Right. Um, uh, and it was it was just an assumed kind of uh, uh, question that, and of le- completely legitimate that uh, they could be they could collapse within, you know five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, but it was worth, it was worth asking the question. It still is worth asking the question, but I felt that there was much more of a sense of, um, you would call it smugness, I think, to that question. You know, that the, the, the Western smugness that I think you, you saying, you think kind of permeates, you are uh, putting words in my mouth. <laughs> permeates, uh, Western reportage and, and China watching. Uh, Gadi, I find that fascinating because I, I, I think for like uh, the sort of dorky China watcher community, it's almost the reverse. Uh, you think it's become more so like this, that? Well, this is the year that David Shambaugh wrote the piece about the coming collapse of China. Yeah, but I mean, come and, on. I, I think a lot of people have responded to that Shambaugh piece by saying they don't, I mean, by saying that that that, that, that piece was not a representative of, of even his own earlier sort of uh, sophisticated. Uh, I'm with uh, Gotti on this one. I would yeah. say that that there is more sort of. I mean, the common wisdom is this: this is proven to be kind of you know resilient and uh, and authoritarianism that kind of learns and and is adaptive, right? Right, and I think we've understood much more about that even in the last um, 13 years. And that's so, right. And and that I think that sense of that, where it's, in other words, take China as what it is. Um, I I leave with more of that, which is not to say that it's more. Uh, tragophobic or pandophilic, but it's more like uh, realistic, uh, mm-hmm. which is a sense that. Uh, so I think they're actually even more uh, repressive than when I first got here. Um, I think that's. It, I think they've tightened the ratchets continuously more, especially since post SARS. Uh, and I think if you talk to people in uh, NGO community, lawyers, uh, activists, Chinese journalists, um, they all would agree with that. Um, at the same time. Uh, they've also shown that they have um, competence and ability as a government. Uh, so those are two different things. You know, it's like we you don't you don't just assess it as are they um, you know repressive totalitarian as uh, to use Jeremy's word. Um, uh, but uh, but you uh, also... no, I never said they were totalitarian. I said that Western journalists were the last people living in a totalitarian China. Slightly different. 
Right, right. Um, <laughs> but, no, that's, so, it's, that's a, I thought it's it's pretty clever. I mean, uh, yeah, and uh, but uh, my point being uh, that uh, you can, uh, without using Kaiser's favorite word, nuance. Um, you can. It's uh, my middle name. <laughs> uh, you can appreciate uh, that, and and yet you say that word with such contempt. Just, well, because I feel it presumes uh, a lack of uh, sophistication. Uh, by, uh, you know, by anybody who you're addressing it to. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think, I think that it's used sort of, uh, as a kind of broad brush, uh, to, um, uh, to attack any particular individual story. I think, you know, a, a lot of a lot more people get it. You know, they get, they get the broader strokes of China. And actually, uh, you know, we all have, uh, gotten more and more of it as we've gone, gone along. Um, and I, for the reasons I just said, I think, the, the breadth and depth of coverage of China by reporters, by academics, has gotten, um, it's, it's, it's gotten much wider and deeper. And, uh, that's because there's more interest in it. You know, when I first got to China in 2002, you know, for, for several years still, uh, people were wondering why I'd gone to China or what, you know, it was just something out of sight and out of mind. Hmm. Obviously, after the financial crisis and after the Olympics and, um, and since 2009 and all that, I mean, it's changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, everybody is interested in China. And so I think so why, has, why leave now? Well, uh, it's been a good run. I mean, it's been a long run. I've been here for eight consecutive years and 11 and a half years out of the last 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone who uh, wasn't a, you know, sinologist <laughs> uh, before I started, uh, I have other interests. And I, sure. I wanted to kind of, I wanted to broaden and deepen my own understanding of other things. Um, As you uh, go off to you know, re- report, on on the media for the Economist um, out of out of New York, what's uh, do you, do you feel like your experience here in China has equipped you, has given you kind of reporting chops that you might not otherwise have developed, or do you feel like maybe uh, being so narrowly focused on this one geography has maybe hobbled you in your understanding of what's been happening, or maybe maybe it's been you know nice to have a kind of nice fresh set of eyes on this particular subject area. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, uh, I I think it it only broadens your mind uh, mm-hmm. to to live elsewhere outside of your home country, um, to see the world, um, to see how other people um, think, um, how they see uh, how they see different parts of the world. You know how they view not just how they view your country, how they view America, but um, you know how they look at Europe, Middle East, uh, China. Um, it's helpful to get those those perspectives. Um, uh, even not just academically, but, um, but just, I guess, anthropologically, you could say. Um, uh, and at the same time, understanding, um, different national industries, you know, and, uh, and of course, I'll be going to a beat that is international in terms of has different, uh, feel in different places, the media business. Um, you obviously, you know, you obviously have journalism or the, you know, the, or film in China is a very different thing from how it is in, in America. Um, some would argue that it's, um, the American business is, is bending towards China's, uh, in that respect. Uh, but, uh, uh, you, you see those interplays. Um, I think it's great to have come from China specifically, uh, to, to narrow this question down a bit, uh, because China does have so much influence uh, right. around the world. Um, and I'm going to see that in my next beat. Right. Um, and you'll be well positioned to people. report it. And everybody, yeah. of course, everybody has to have a China strategy. Uh, so there, it'll be fun to see things from that perspective as well, you know, uh, it, 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 to see people who are sitting in New York or elsewhere 
who know nothing about the place, but uh, they've got to have their well. China you strategy. you can be there with your with your notebook and smirk. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I think it's uh, I think it's helped me um, just to have a um, a broader perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as reporting chops, China is such a difficult uh, place. I mean, it's a e- it's an easy place to get ideas. Um, uh, it's an easy place to wake up and know what you want to write about. Um, it's a very difficult place to get a deep understanding of, of each individual story. Um, and it's a difficult place to get people to talk. Uh, it's a difficult, it's, it's difficult to get access to, to even, you know, let's say even a, a something as basic as a factory for a particular story. Sure. You know, and all of those things are going to be easier, uh, much easier, um, in my new peak. And hopefully I'll t- be able to take some of those lessons of how I was able to get information anyways. Um, we'll be so the, delighted to, by the ease of, of access that you'll be like writing these fluffy. <laughs> but also, you know, you know, you under, the importance stories. of relationships. Although, of course, you already understand that as a journalist, uh, no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the importance of uh, of relationships to getting uh, to, to to getting access or to getting um, uh, to getting uh, a certain person to talk to you. Uh, you know, I think that's. Uh, but but without being sort of uh, beholden. Um, you know, that's, right. th- those are, th- those are good lessons to have learned. And I think, um, China does, um, just train you hard up on that. <laughs> well, you're going to have to flag the stories that you write because of that damned economist policy of, of not providing bylines. But, you know, I hope that you post your stuff on Facebook and that you let us know what it is that you're writing, what's coming off of, of your keyboard so that, you know, we yeah, can, yeah. We can I do, it. um, uh, I do post, uh, quite a few of my stories on Twitter, which, right. of course, which is out there in the open on Facebook, uh, uh, maybe as a curmudgeon or something, I, I still I still keep my network closed to my friends, so uh, so you'll see them, okay. um, Kaiser. But uh, and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's an antiquated way of looking at it. Or I should have a second Facebook page. Well, your, I've always your, felt your Facebook feed is closed. What do you mean my Twitter feed is? What, am I, what do you mean my Twitter feed? What do you mean you 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 keep it closed? No, no, no Twitter, no, feed, is Twitter, Twitter, Twitter feed is open. Twitter feed is open. Oh, it's Facebook. Uh, that's Facebook closed. is okay. Facebook that's yeah. closed. And, that's Facebook. And uh, you know, Facebook always sort of vexes me in that way. More importantly, what about fake Tom Friedman? Will that continue? Well, fake Tom Friedman is always there in spirit. Okay. Uh, and uh, I enjoyed writing uh, my. I, I was I was enjoyed being able to publish one fake Tom Friedman column, which was with Forbes. Uh, yeah, that was awesome. A few years ago. Um, we actually had you but, read that one on uh, on Seneca. Do you remember? Uh, I, oh, now I do. And uh, I, I think uh, what'll what'll be great about the next beat, of course, is that I'll be able to sort of assume the persona, his persona, as I <laughs> as I fly around the world, because I'll be going to I'll be going to some places I've never been before, and so I'll know how to. I was under- talking to a cab driver. I'll know how to understand. I'll, I'll know how to understand those places. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'll have uh, I I can just follow uh, follow the spirit of Tom Friedman, fake Tom Friedman. Well. Jeremy, you and me are going to miss this guy, right? Jeremy's silent. Yeah, silence. Well, I'll be quite close to him. Because, <laughs> yeah, um, he'll be close to him. He's only going to be an hour and a half flight or so from where I live. So Yeah, Jeremy, I look forward to seeing see you in America. A lot more than I have in the last few years in Beijing. You can see Indeed. his Dodge Ram and his gun rack. And do you, oh, what about the Confederate yeah. flag, Jeremy? Are you going <laughs> to... Anyway. I don't have a Confederate flag on my truck. No. Good, good, good. <laughs> but you do have a truck. He does have a truck. I have a truck. Right. Yeah. It's only only it's one dodge. step. It's made in the USA, one step. Darling. It's only one, one step, step away from uh, from a shotgun, a Confederate flag. Just watch out, Jeremy. Um, let's let's go to recommendations. And wait, let me just say uh, thanks thanks so much for coming in. It was a great conversation. Uh, thanks and, for having me, guys. Yeah, it's been uh, fun doing this podcast. Recommend some, Jeremy. 
I, I get off this All week because right, so I'm, I'm, I'm recommending Gotti's big package. I don't know if Gotti ever cooks. Probably not, because um, he's like a bachelor. You know, the bachelor Jewish boy, so he probably never cooks. But well, in New York, I could just go out to dinner to every cook. night, right? I mean, it's not that expensive. They have York, more cheese right? in New York. Um, uh, well, in New York, <laughs> you might not need to cook Chinese food in New York because you can go to Flushing or you know one of the like four Chinatowns that basically exist around New York now. I'll, I'll, I'm going to try. Food. I'm going to try causing cooking to be done. Okay, um, but uh, we'll see about but, my own cooking. My, <laughs> so is your recommendation? Because I, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, where there are uh, two good Chinese restaurants that I know of so far, um, and they wouldn't necessarily be, co- be considered that good if they weren't Beijing. Uh, so I've had to learn to cook, and I've uh, I'm familiar with a lot of Chinese cooking web websites, um, and if you use Baidu, is better than Google for this. You can you can find a lot of good recipes in Chinese if you read Chinese. But they assume a certain amount of um, knowledge generally about Chinese cooking. So they say things like heat the oil to like you know sixty percent hot. And you need to understand that that's gutter oil. I mean, that's that's what you're meaning, right? So you, yeah, don't, you don't I, just I don't you don't just mean, use actually. regular oil for that. It's got to be like pure degoyo. <laughs> so if you are uh, sort of uh, learning to cook Chinese food from fresh uh, by yourself. I would recommend a book by Fuchsia Dunlop. Yeah. I knew you were going to say Pretty I knew much you were all say of her it, books right, are right. good. But there's one called Every Grain of Rice, um, which is sort of everyday Chinese cooking. A lot of it is kind of half an hour type, 45-minute preparation time. Uh, really good Chinese food and uh, written in a way that's very understandable, even if you haven't spent uh, hundreds of hours with uh, a shrifu telling you exactly the way to chop the chicken. Now, Fuchsia's great, and uh, I've never actually met her, but uh, I've been to. She has a, there's a couple of restaurants in London she's associated with. I'm not sure what the, uh, whether she has like a partial stake or just consulted, but um, uh, su- unsurprisingly, they're amongst they're they're very nice uh, Chinese restaurants. The last time I saw her name pop up was in an article um, about you know the Yulin Dog Meat Festival, and 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 she had just just written this sort of very very straight non judgy kind of how to prepare dog meat kind of piece. So it wasn't like a David Foster Wallace no, approach. No, it wasn't uh, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, do you know, does she have anything to do with Dunlop tires? Anyone know? <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I no. don't. I don't. I, I don't uh, uh, you suddenly had, you don't? You had this like a particular color of tire, like a fuchsia colored Dunlop tire. Was a, anyway. Awesome. Yeah, good recommendation. And on you, Gotti, what do you have for us this week? A reading recommendation. I didn't come prepared with a reading recommendation. Well, it doesn't have to be a reading one. It can be, you know, an anything recommendation. You've had um, all this time. Your massage parlor maybe would be the best one to go out with. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Um, uh, what, what, what would I recommend? Kaiser, are you not going to give, give a recommendation? Uh, I so had that already I can stall, uh, stall a little further. Uh, what am I reading these days? Oh, well, I already recommended. I mean, I, was, I just finished Devil in the Grove. But Thurgood Marshall. Oh, I have one. Oh, good. good I have good. one. No, yes. Kaiser, you uh, recommended Gotti's Big Package. I did, right, right. Um, that was. Uh, I do have one, and it's the. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading this. I just actually bought this. Um, the new Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping book by As a Revolution. Oh. Uh, no, 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 no. The new one by Pansov and Levine. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, A Revolutionary Life. Um, uh, Pansov and Levine, Alexander Pansov and Stephen Levine, they wrote um, Mao, uh, The Real Story. Right. Um, and um, and I'm looking forward to reading this this uh, take on Dung. Yeah, uh, yeah. By them. I think uh, you know Pansov's uh, 
work is informed uh, by access to the archives uh, in the, from the former Soviet Union. Um, and I think that was m a bigger deal in the Mao book than it will be in the, right, Dung, in the, in the Dung book. But uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to reading that. Well, great. Thanks, folks. And, uh, and adieu, dear Gadi, adieu. Uh, we, and you, we, and you. <laughs> we will and see you, you again. <laughs>